As Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. As he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. All the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, a woman who was a widow. And there were many leopards in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled from wrath, with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their mists, he went on his way. Several years ago, <clears throat> Tim Keller was doing a seminar to seminary students and to pastors on the subject of preaching and he addressed the amount of time that it takes to prepare a sermon. The average pastor spends about 15 to 20 hours in study and preparation. And he actually was encouraging the younger pastors and seminarians not to spend that much time, maybe 8 to 10 hours at most, in their sermon prep. He said everything above that was a waste of time. Quote, you know, it's scary to say this to the younger ministers. You're not going to be much better by putting in 20 hours on that sermon. <laughs> The only way you're going to be a better preacher is if you preach often. For the first 200 sermons, no matter what you do, your first 200 sermons are going to be terrible. <laughs> uh, you know, <clears throat> 40 years ago this month, I preached my first sermon. It was a Wednesday night, um, and two other guys and myself were given 15 minutes each to bring a message before our home church. I remember that the first guy was extremely nervous and he sat down after like five or six minutes. Um, and then the second guy was my close friend, Mike, and he went for about 10, 11, 12 minutes, something like that. Um, I went last and I was keeping track of the time and I figured, well, since they didn't use their minutes, I would. And I tacked them on to my sermon, ignoring the 15 minute time limit. That's about all I remember, 40 years later. That's about all I really remember uh, from that sermon, which I am sure was thoroughly unremarkable and terrible as uh, 
Dr. Keller expresses, it certainly was not worth the extra time that I took from my friends, uh, which says a lot about the patience of my home church at the time. First sermons are typically terrible, and they are not very memorable, except for the first sermon that Jesus gives to his hometown, which Luke now gives us in chapter 4. The first sermon that Jesus gives to his hometown in Nazareth is absolutely incredible. It's extremely memorable. And we're going to do a deep dive into it this morning. But first, let's begin by kind of placing the context of this sermon into the overall context of Jesus' public ministry. When you think about the context of his ministry, there is a spiritual context and there is a physical material context. Luke begins in verse 14 with the spiritual context. Jesus returned from the temptation in the desert in the power of the Spirit. Luke again brings the Holy Spirit before us. Luke, the author of Acts, who's going to give us the day of Pentecost. This is a regular theme. We've already seen that it was through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is conceived. We've seen him anointed and baptized and ordained through the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He is led by the Holy Spirit into the desert for the temptation that takes place. He is filled with the Spirit so that he can endure and successfully complete that temptation. And now we find that he is ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't miss this, church. I mean, think about it for a moment. If it was necessary for our Lord to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish his ministry, how important is it for us before we take our place in the hospitality ministry or before we prepare that, that Bible study for our small group or before we walk into this room on Sunday afternoon and gather together our group of children or students for their discipleship time or how important is it before we take that meal to somebody in our community or in our church who's in need? How important is it for us to pause and stop and pray and confess our dependence and our need for the Holy Spirit to implore him to fill us so that whatever the ministry form takes we are prepared so that he is working through us effectively for the glory of Jesus Christ. The overarching context of all ministry is spiritual. Therefore, it requires the person of the Holy Spirit working through us if it is going to produce eternal life. Let ministry not be routine to any of us. Let us take the time to spend it in prayer with the Holy Spirit, asking him to fill us and control us and bring about a good work through our meager efforts. That spiritual context is important. There's also a physical material context in this passage. It kind of starts from the macro and comes down to the more granular level. At the macro level, we see that he returned to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. This is a map of Galilee, right here we go, a map of Galilee. Um, Israel was broken up into different provinces. So for example, you really can't see it, but down to the south would be Judea, where Jerusalem is. And then in the middle was Samaria. Galilee took the northern half of modern-day Israel and the southern half of modern-day Lebanon. It was an important province in the country. Um, 
You see those arrows that are coming in through Galilee. That's intentional because Galilee was the area where the Gentiles and all the trade would come from Greece and Rome and the rest of the, of the Roman Empire. And so Galilee had a reputation that was not too favorable among the devout Jews of Jerusalem, for example. And in fact, uh, in Matthew chapter 4, as Matthew is relaying Jesus' initial ministry, he says this, he quotes from Isaiah, "...the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the..." What's the next word? Gentiles. "...the people dwelling there in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned." From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, "...repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." So this is his home province. In fact, I think I have a, do I have a laser on this thing? I can't tell. I think I do. Is that a laser? Yeah, all right. Um, let me try to get it out of the way if I can uh, here. I want to show you this right here. This is uh, uh, Nazareth right here. And here on Nazareth, you have this major ridge. It's, a, it's like a small mountain uh, line of mountains. It's 1,100 feet above sea level. On each side of the Nazareth Ridge, there are famous valleys, the Beth Natofa and the Jezreel Valley. I have a couple of pictures for you so you can see this. This is from Beth Natofa looking back towards the Nazareth Ridge. And of course, Nazareth has become a bigger city, a city now. Back in the day of Jesus, it was a little village, a hamlet. This is from the, the top of that ridge, looking out at the other valley, this is the Jezreel Valley. This is in the New Testament known as the Valley of Armageddon. Okay, So this area that Jesus was raised in, when Jesus could come to the top of this ridge, Nazareth was down on the side of this ridge in a hollow. And it was a small little village, not a lot of people. And, and over time, it grew in the centuries ahead. But he could walk to the top of this ridge. And if he looked to the east, He's looking at Mount Tabor. He's looking at the, at the uh, Mount Carmel right there where Elijah uh, destroyed the priest and the, the prophets of Baal. He's looking at the places where Deborah and Balak defeated the enemies of Israel, where Saul and his son Jonathan and King Josiah are killed at various times in battle in this valley. If he turns to the east, he can look and he can see the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, off in the distance, this little hamlet on the side of this ridge, Nazareth. And of course, Jesus and Joseph, no, Jesus, the son of Joseph, raised here, was a carpenter. Now, we think of carpenters, we think of, you know, like maybe woodworkers like Mark over here, but in all likelihood, Jesus as a carpenter meant that he and Joseph were digging out blocks of this limestone and forming it and using it to build the houses and the and the businesses that people would use either in Nazareth or down in the valley. This little hamlet of Nazareth was is significant. You see, the people who were more devout, the Jews who were more serious about their faith, they would live in a, in a back area like this, maybe what we would call the backwoods, or up on a ridge like this, not down in the valleys. Down in the valleys, this is where all the commerce came through. This is where the Gentiles came through. This was where the fertile land was, and you could make a great living and a lot of money, but it meant doing business and being around on a continual basis the Gentiles who had set up their own homes and their own cities and villages. And so the Jews who 
lived down in the valley and in the bigger cities, they were in a perpetual state of uncleanness. The devout Jews would live in a small hamlet and out of the way like Nazareth, telling you something about the spiritual nature of Joseph and Mary and what Jesus was raised in. So you have Galilee and Nazareth, and the scriptures tell us the synagogue. He taught, verse 15, in the synagogues, being glorified by all. Verse 16, he comes to Nazareth, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Uh, Before we think about that synagogue, I just want to point something out, really important in that passage, especially for our modern evangelical church. And modern evangelicalism today, the overwhelming majority of modern evangelicals attend corporate worship less than 50% of the time in a year. The average is 19 times a year. Notice what the scriptures tell us about Jesus. Here is the creator in flesh, the giver of the word of God, the living word of God, who throughout his life, starting as a child, is not above worshiping every Saturday, every Sabbath with God's people in the synagogue. It says something to the importance of corporate worship, the fact that our Savior did not skip it for Disney or the beach. Not even an amen. Okay, that's a, (laughs) all right. Maybe there's a little guilt there. I don't know. (laughs) Moving on. So he comes to the synagogue. There's a special nature of the synagogue. The synagogue had a liturgy. Liturgy shouldn't be a word that scares us. Liturgy just means that there's an order to the service. It's not chaotic. We have a liturgy. You've probably noticed how we start with singing, and then there's a time of prayer, and then uh, scripture and confession and more prayer, and then the preaching. It's very similar to the liturgy of the synagogue. They would start by singing a couple of the Psalms, like Psalm 150. And then the leader of the synagogue, the president of the synagogue, would lead the people in a time of of prayer, and that prayer would be both private prayer and also responsive prayer back and forth. After that prayer and the times of benediction there in that prayer, they would have a reading from the Torah, the Old Testament law. And then they would go and they would take the scroll of, from a prophet and they would read a passage out of that prophet that the, the speaker, the rabbi, or the president might want to preach from that day. They would stand and read it, and then after reading, the rabbi would sit down to teach, and the people would hear the sermon. And at the end of the sermon, they would receive the ironic blessing like we do most Sundays, and then depart. If there was a visiting rabbi, like in this situation with Jesus, the president of the the synagogue would come to him and ask, perhaps, what do you want to read from and speak from? We'd like you to bring the message this morning, which is clearly what happens with Jesus, and he chooses this passage. Now, to be clear, Jesus' first sermon in his hometown synagogue was not his first sermon. In fact, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 tells us, that before this ever happens, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Even in our passage, verses 14 and 15 tell us that he's been going to the synagogues and his fame has been spreading throughout the land. Verses 31 to 37 give us an idea of what he was doing. He was going to the synagogues, he was preaching, he was healing people of their diseases, he was casting out demons, he was proclaiming the year of the Lord. 
And so this sermon was not actually his first sermon. First sermon in his hometown, but not his first sermon. So why does Luke put this immediately after the temptation in the desert? As if it's his first sermon. Why does he do that? Well, it's not that Luke made a mistake. Uh, Remember, I told you at the very beginning that Luke has a specific purpose in this historical narrative, this gospel that he's creating. He's creating a historical narrative for Gentiles like Theophilus so that they will be convinced that the Jesus who that they are trusting in is the Jesus who is the Son of God worthy of their faith and their service. And so Luke does not pretend to give us Jesus's life in a directly chronological order. Matthew does more of that, not Luke. He takes events and he puts them where it's convenient based upon the overwhelming desire to communicate this theme to Theophilus. So the question is, why does he take this sermon and move it much closer to the beginning of Jesus's ministry? Uh, Matthew, uh, just to be clear, in Matthew's account, Jesus has already um, preached a sermon on the mount. He's already walked on the Sea of Galilee and the storms and all that. He's already dealt with the demoniacs of Gadara. Jesus has already actually given many of the parables that we know and love. So this, this event is actually much later in Jesus's ministry, maybe halfway through, yet Luke puts it at the beginning. Why? Because this sermon and what he says in this synagogue is a template for all of Jesus' ministry. As we go from this point on in the book of Luke, you will be able to see that whether it's a parable or it's a miracle or it's a sermon, it will tie back in in some way or another to the very message that he brings to the people of Nazareth. In one way or another, it is an expansion or application of this sermon. And so Luke is putting this up at the beginning to help us realize that the rest of what he delivers to us is simply an unpacking of what this sermon says. That everything else he does is an application of this this good news that we have in his message, the gospel according to Jesus. So let's take a look at it real quick. Verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, this is kind of interesting because he takes the scroll of Isaiah. Back then, guys, they did not have spaces between the words. They didn't have line breaks. They didn't have numbers like we do. It was just letters, continual letters, right? And, but yet Jesus knew the word of God well enough that he could go to near the end of Isaiah and find Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, a very important passage. You see, in Isaiah chapter 60, at the end of chapter 60, God is telling the Israelites, the day of salvation will come. There's coming a day when I'm going to undo all the chaos and horror of sin in this world, that I'm going to restore all of creation, and you are going to be my eternal people. You will be with me forever and ever, and life will be everything that it was meant to be before sin entered into the world. And at the end of chapter 60, The question is asked, how is this going to happen? And this is where Isaiah 61 comes into play. Verse 1 that that Jesus is quoting from. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he has anointed me. In other words, how is, G, how is God gonna bring about this new golden era for all of eternity? He's going to send the anointed one, the Messiah. And so when Jesus reads this passage to these people in Nazareth, in this synagogue, he is tapping in to the greatest hope of their life, that the Messiah would come. It's the same hope that devout Jews who reject Jesus still have today. They want their Messiah to come, not seeing that he has come already. And so Jesus taps in to this great hope. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. And anointed me to do what? Several things. Proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus' sermon to them and to others was the fulfillment of this prophecy that salvation had come to all who would hear it. But specifically, this message of hope comes to those who are ready to receive it. And sadly, most people are not ready to receive it. All of us are born into spiritual poverty. That's a fact. But the physical poor seem to have an easier time realizing their need for Christ and for the grace of God than those who have their material needs easily met. There's something about the physical poor who have to live day to day dependent upon the grace and the mercy of God just for their existence that sets them up to more easily accept their spiritual poverty. Those of us who are materially set, and and by the way, I'm not using the word rich because every one of you probably would say, no, I'm not rich, I'm not rich. But every one of us in this room is rich compared to the vast majority of the world. We are wealthy, when we are certainly beyond wealthy by the standards of Jesus' day. Every single one of us, even those of you on a set income from Social Security, you're wealthy compared to the rest of the world. And what does Jesus say about the rich and the wealthy? It is easier for a camel to go through the what? eye of a needle than for a wealthy person, a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Why is that the case? Because we are not poor in spirit. We we don't depend upon God just to exist. And so it's harder in some respects for the gospel to break through in our culture, in our day, in our generation because of our prosperity. Isn't that an irony? What an irony, a paradox. But we can't get away from the fact that Jesus, the first line of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the what? Poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. So he says, I have been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. That word captives literally means prisoners of war. And and of course, this is a metaphorical use, not a literal use. So we understand what Jesus is meaning here by that word liberty, because the word liberty for these captives, that word liberty, all throughout the rest of the book of Luke is translated as forgiveness. In other words, Jesus brings liberty and freedom to all who are in bondage to sin, whatever form it may take. He has been anointed to proclaim the good news to the poor, to set Uh, proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, to recover the sight of the blind. Recently, Catherine and I and MJ, we were, I think, in an uh, airport or something like this, uh, someplace, lots of people around. 
And many of you know that, G, uh, that MJ is visually impaired, and he takes his cane, especially in times when we know there's going to be a crowd. And I noticed something on that day that as he was going on, and he was like just zooming. He was just tapping, you know. And as people were coming towards them, I would watch their face, and I could see that they recognized that, okay, someone who's visually impaired is coming, and, and they would move aside. You know, even these people who were in a big hurry were sensitive enough to, okay, hey, I need to make an allowance here. And on some people, you could see the compassion on their face, and they'd make eye contact, dad to dad, or mom to dad, whatever, and they understood that special grace was needed here. I want you to think about that for a moment. Do you have a loved one who needs salvation, who needs Jesus? Do you have a neighbor, a coworker who needs Jesus? I want to encourage you to let this spiritual reality that they are blind. They are spiritually blind. Let that reality temper and influence your interaction with them, especially this week when you're chowing down on turkey. You know, and you have that uncle or that aunt or that cousin or maybe that child who scoffs at your faith and they put their little digs in this week. Let the spiritual reality temper your response. They don't need our condemnation. They need our compassion. They don't need our irritation and frustration. They need our intercession. We need to see them as spiritually blind, and let that affect how we interact with them to give grace and mercy, to move out of the way so that there's gentleness and a picture of Jesus that is compelling and not off-putting. They don't need our irritation. They need our intercession and prayer. We need to pray that God would pour out his grace upon them, that he would open their spiritual eyes He was anointed to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That word oppressed means those who are shattered, those who are downtrodden, broken, crushed. In our language today, this is saying, I have come to set at liberty, to make free, give freedom to all those who have been abused in some way or another. What, what grace is there for those here this morning who have been wounded by others or you wounded others as a result of your sin? You know, Malcolm Muggeridge is a name that some of us older folks might recognize. He was a, a British journalist and satirist. He was very popular in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, Newsweek magazine, Saturday Evening Post, some things like this. He was, uh, he was quite the guy. He came to age in the roaring 20s. He was not a Christian. He, he turned to everything that was there to give him meaning in life. He contemplated suicide several times. He had his phase where he was a communist, and he worked for communism in the land of England, his, his agnostic phase. And then, of course, there was many years of sensuality and sexual promiscuity. He was known within the industry. Women would later report that he was the most handsy, groping person they'd ever worked with. They would not get in a taxi with him alone. That's the type of guy he was. But in the early 1960s, he came to Christ. And a massive change. The reason why I know that about those women is those women said that in the context of saying, when he became a Christian, everything changed. 
He wasn't like that anymore. Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, Kent Hughes, uh, shares a quote from his son of spiritual autobiography where he says this about himself. All other freedoms, once won, soon turn into new servitude. In other words, all the things that I was pursuing when I got it, it did nothing more than enslave me more deeply. And then he says this, Christ is the only liberator whose liberation lasts forever. Christ is the only liberator whose liberation lasts forever. What hope there? He's anointed me to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. No doubt the, the Hebrews listening to that phrase would immediately think of the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, every 50 years, the reset button was pressed. All the bankruptcies were undone. If you had lost your family farm and, and somebody else had been able to buy it out from underneath you, you got your family land back. Those who had sold themselves into indentured slavery and servanthood were released. The criminals were released. It was the year of jubilee, the year of freedom and release from whatever was oppressing and enslaving you. And so Jesus says that is here, this great day. And verse 20 tells us, he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I want you to picture that scene. You know, imagine with me for just a moment what this saying here. Right? Here's Jesus. He reads this famous, well-known passage. He, he actually had to translate it out of Hebrew into Aramaic. That was the language of the day. He reads it, and then he sits down. He's, the sermon is now about to begin. And Luke tells us, every eye was fixed on him. You know, you know, in our language, we would say what? You could have heard a pin drop. Is that you, we've, had these, we've had those moments in our own church when something very different, somber, whatever happens, and I mean, you don't hear a noise going on. How does Luke know that that's what happened? Remember what he said in chapter one? I didn't rely upon other accounts. I went and interviewed the eyewitnesses, the people who were in that synagogue on that day. And apparently, this was so memorable to the people who were there that they brought it up to Luke. And they said, everybody, you could have heard a pin drop. We were on pins and needles. We're waiting. What is he going to say? And what does he say? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What an opening to a sermon. Jesus goes straight to the climax. He doesn't intro and go. He goes straight to the climactic point. Today, this prophecy, Isaiah's prophecy, has been fulfilled in your presence. Out of all the wonderful things that Jesus could have said to them, this was the most important. And everyone in that synagogue got the message loud and clear. Everyone understood that with that statement, Jesus was claiming to be the anointed one, the Messiah, who is going to bring about all these blessings of this good news, this gospel according to Jesus. And how do the people respond to it? They reject him. His hometown rejects him. Verse 22 says, And all spoke well of him, 
and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. At first, the people are amazed. The carpenter can preach. Wow. And not only is he filled with grace, he says it with authority. He's not quoting all these other rabbis and church councils and church traditions. He's speaking as if he has the truth. And they're amazed, but then their blindness comes through. They can only see him as the carpenter's son, not the son of God. And I can't help but think that there was a tinge of sadness in Jesus' voice when he gives them the Old Testament illustrations of the Gentile widow, Zephathah, and the, the Gentile Syrian general, Naaman. See, unlike the people of, of Elijah and Elisha's day when those stories took place, or unlike the people of Nazareth in that synagogue in Jesus' day, those two Gentiles, they first believed the word of God that was coming through the prophet and the messenger of God. And then as a result of that, they experienced the power of God in their lives, bringing freedom from their physical and their spiritual bondages. But Jesus' neighbors, they hear it, wow! But isn't this Joseph's son? Do miracles for us like you did at Capernaum. You see, these, this request of miracles, was this an expression of faith or of doubt? What was it? Doubt. And so Jesus' neighbors, they wanted to reverse the divine order of operations. Give us what we want first, and then we'll follow you. Then we'll believe. And Jesus, he lowers the hammer on them and say, you guys are worse than the Gentiles. You're up here in your enclave so that you won't be polluted by the Gentiles, but there are Gentiles who get it right. They believe first and then they experience the power of God. Jesus will, would give freedom to anyone, but it starts by first believing in him. That's the order. Turning away from ourselves and Trusting in him alone for whatever that need is, that's how we experience the power of God. And so as we think about this sermon this morning and we apply it to ourselves, some of us here this morning, perhaps we are materially, we're physically wealthy, but spiritually, we're on the welfare rolls. We're poor. We look good on the outside, but there's an emptiness on the inside. There's no abundant life taking place. The Lord Jesus says, your abundant life starts by first believing in me, trusting in me, committing your life to me, seeing me for who I am. How does this happen? It begins by you beginning to praying, asking God to remove the blindness so that you can see the truth that is in our world in the spiritual realm. Many of us here, we, we follow Jesus, yet those verses of bondage, 
they resonate. There's bondage to sin. We, we have the Holy Spirit within us, but for some reason, over and over and over and over again, we keep coming back to the same sin. There's an addiction. There's something that has a hold of us. This message is for every one of us who are in that situation this morning. Our deliverance doesn't come by white-knuckling it. Our deliverance doesn't come through all of the different forms of accountability. As important as they are and as good as they are, they can only do so much. They cannot give lasting freedom and deliverance. Only Jesus can do that. And then those other things are tools that we can take advantage of within the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there is freedom for you this morning, if you are in bondage to sin. And the form of that sin may take, may take a, a bad marriage where you're mistreating your spouse or you're not getting along with one another. That bondage may be a substance. It may be something that you're looking at on television. It may be something that you're putting into your mouth. Whatever form it takes, deliverance comes by first trusting and committing our lives to Jesus Christ. One of the, I think the first step in recovery ministry is to admit I have no power over this and my life is undone because of this sin, this addiction that is in my life. I need help from outside of myself. And that's what Jesus offers every one of us. Whatever that bondage, whatever form that bondage takes, takes in our lives. I love this fact that Jesus does not leave out the crushed, the abused. I, I, the, I think one of the most important ministries we've started here at Covenant in the last several years is recognizing the deep woundedness and the hurt that is in so many people's lives, men and women alike, because of sexual abuse or from physical abuse. These are the wounds that just keep on giving and giving and giving but there is deliverance. There is freedom from the enslavement and the imprisonment of those wounds that comes through Jesus Christ. And if you have this in your life, please don't sit in your seat suffering in that way. Come and let us love you and bring you to the Savior who can deliver you. So much here for us to consider. At the corporate level, let me just say one final word of closing. Jesus goes around from synagogue to synagogue, from area to area, and this chapter tells us that he delivered people from their physical needs, their hunger, their illnesses, their destitution, and in doing so, he also brought to them the gospel according to Jesus. Ministry to our community is not an either-or situation. We, some churches and some groups, liberation theology, social gospel theology, it's all about bringing justice to the community, helping people with their needs, making sure that we have a merciful, just society, all things that are important and that we should work towards. But that ultimately only meets physical, temporal needs. And in some churches, at a reaction to those who have taken say, social justice in a wrong direction, they ignore this, and it's all about proclaiming and preaching the word of God. Jesus was not an either-or Messiah. He was a both-and Savior. And we as a church need to remember that.
as we minister in our community, it is not either meeting people's physical and emotional and, uh, needs and, or meeting their spiritual needs. It's both. It's both. And may God give us the grace to do so. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your first sermon in Nazareth. We thank you for the gospel, the good news that is there for all of us. For the one who doesn't know you this morning, Lord Jesus, would you open their eyes and help them to see their spiritual poverty, their need to turn from sin and self and to embrace you as Lord and Savior. For those of us here, Lord Jesus, who we find ourselves in some form of bondage or another, through your spirit, would you give us the power to lean into you, to rely upon you, to receive your grace that sanctifies and changes us. Give us a broken heart of repentance and humility. Help us to run to you, knowing that all who are heavy laden, when we bring our burdens to you, you will give us rest. We praise you for this. In your name we pray. Amen.